Good morning. You can find your seat and turn to Exodus chapter 32. We'll be starting in verse 1. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Father, God, we come to this passage. I know many of us just questioning, how could this be? How could this happen, Lord? Yet, you make it so clear in your word uh, through stories and repeated stories of the sins of your people. And not just that, you make it so clear in your word that, that these took place as an example to us, Lord, because we sin in the same exact way. We know you. We know your goodness. We know your grace. We know your power, your justice. Yet daily, we disobey you. God, I pray as we walk through this passage this morning, Lord, that we, we understand Scripture better, Lord. We understand how this fits in Exodus. We understand how this fits in the meta narrative, the large story of Scripture, Lord, that, that we understand the interconnections of Scripture better, Lord. But, but more importantly, Lord, I pray the Spirit convicts us and, and, and enlightens us to, to how we are the same, that we can apply this text to our lives, Lord, that we would have application, Lord, and that would stop us from sinning in the same way the Israelites did, Lord. So God, I pray this this morning. I pray that you're with us in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're uh, starting a whole new section in the of the book of Exodus. Obviously, it's all connected. It's one long story, but in the outline of the book of Exodus, this is a, a new portion of that story. Uh, we've spent a few months now in the tabernacle where Moses went up the mountain and was getting instructions on, on how to build the, the tabernacle. It, it was chapters of only God speaking with these instructions. But, but today in Exodus 32, we, we are entering back into the narrative the narrative portion of the Exodus, what was Israel doing while Moses was getting the instructions from the Lord on how to build the sanctuary and how to build the tabernacle? 
that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to spend some time walking through the passage. But before we get there, before we get to our passage, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. We're going to be jumping all over the place in Scripture today, so just listen to this. Uh, um, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 says this. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's Exodus 32, verse 6. Uh, Paul, who's the author in 1 Corinthians, is referring back to Exodus chapter 32. And he even quotes it. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want you to listen to verse 11 now. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says this. This is what Paul tells us, right? The church at Corinth and through that to us. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, Paul, again, inspired by, by God, the Holy Spirit, is saying in this passage, right, that, that our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 32, is an example for us, right? In other words, we will be blessed if we pay attention to how Israel fell into sin because verse 6 says this, now these things took place as an examples, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, it's it's a warning. We can learn from our passage this morning and apply it directly to our lives. And I wanted to start this morning because I, I think this is a very applicable passage this morning. In fact, I have eight ways, eight ways, I usually have three points, so, so eight. <laughs> First service got out, so we're, we're good, you won't be here all day. Um, eight ways Israel fell into sin, and I believe we can learn from each one of these ways. So, eight ways Israel fell into sin. Again, we're in Exodus 32. Let me start with the first way. First, Israel fell into sin because they wanted to replace God with themselves as God. Again, Israel fell into sin because they wanted to replace God with themselves as God. Last week, the sermon last week, uh, my last point was this. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. I've just kind of gone over that over and over and over again. So I hope it's extremely clear by now that Exodus chapter 25 through 31 is a recreation of the garden. The tabernacle, the instructions God is giving Moses is a recreation of the garden. And I said last week, if Exodus 25 through 31 is a recreation of the garden, then Exodus 32 is a recreation of the fall of man. Meaning, There's a connection between Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 32. And because there's a connection, I I think we should go to Genesis 3 to help us understand Exodus 32 a little bit better. So if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. In fact, you should put a bookmark 
permanently in Genesis chapter 3 because I go there so often in the sermons because it's such a foundational passage to all of Scripture and understanding sin nature and who we are. In fact, there are so many different aspects of this chapter that it's important that we go back over and over and over again. But look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Very familiar to us. Again, this will help us understand Exodus 32. Verse 1 says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you will become your own God knowing good and evil on your own. You won't, in other words, have to go to God anymore to know good and evil. You yourselves can determine what is good and what is evil. You will be your own God. That's the temptation. That was the temptation that that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden to replace God with themselves as God. Well, look at verse 6. It says this, and, and the phrase here and how this is worded is extremely important. Look what it says. So, when the woman saw that, the tree was good. So, when the woman saw that. Now, turn back to Exodus 32. I want you to listen how this passage starts. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that, does that sound familiar? It's the same exact Hebrew construction as Genesis 3. When the woman saw that, verse 1, Exodus 32, when the people saw that, the author of Exodus is once again making a connection between the garden and this passage. Just think about it for a second. He could have just said, When Moses was delayed in coming down, that would have made perfect sense. But that's not how he puts it. Verse 1 says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, what did they do? They sinned. They sinned, just like the garden. They sinned, just like Eve, Israel sinned because they didn't listen to God. They didn't obey his words. They didn't obey his voice. Moses gave them clear instructions in Exodus 24, verse 14. He said this, Wait here. Wait here until we, or until I, return to you. That was an instruction that Moses gave to the Israelites. In other words, don't do anything till I return from the mountain. But the Israelites didn't listen. They didn't like God's timetable. And because they didn't like God's timetable, they replaced him. Again, look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, 
up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now this implies the promised land, who shall go before us, who will take us to the promised land, in other words. Make us gods right now that will take us to the promised lands. They, they were saying, in, in essence, they are tired of waiting for God, for his timetable, to get them to the promised land. Therefore, Aaron, up, make us gods who will go now. On our timetable. They made a golden calf, a god who could be controlled. In essence, just like Eve, they wanted to be their own god. Therefore, they rebelled against the true god and made a false god, a god that demanded nothing of them, one that didn't speak, one that only listened. Again, this is an example to us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an example to us because this is the heart behind all sin. Simply, we don't like God's commands. <laughs> we don't like God's rules. We don't trust God to be Lord of our lives. We don't like God's timetable. We don't like the circumstances we're in. Therefore, the heart behind sin is a denial of God's lordship over our lives. It was true for Eve and Adam and Eve in the garden. It was true for the Israelites in the wilderness. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Israel is doing at Mount Sinai. There's a connection between these two passages. And it keeps going because the second way Israel fell into sin was this. They didn't follow God's prescribed order. They didn't follow God's prescribed order. Think about Genesis 3 real quick. What, what happened right after Eve ate? The fruit. What, what's the first thing she did after that? You can answer. Right? She gave it to her husband. Right? She gave some to her husband, Adam. I want you to think about that because God created Adam to, to lead his wife. And he created both of them together to have dominion over the animals. But in Genesis 3, we see the opposite of that. We see an animal, a snake, leading Eve, and then Eve leading her husband. This is completely backwards to God's created order. The animal was leading the woman, and the woman was leading the man. Adam and Eve were not following God's structure of authority. Well, let me ask a question. Who was supposed to be in charge while Moses was gone? Aaron. In fact, Exodus 24, verse 14 says this, And he, that's Moses, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. In other words, they're in charge, just like I have been in charge. They're going to take my place while I'm gone. If you have a dispute, go to Aaron. Talk with him. He's leading. Well, look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Let me ask a question. Who's leading in verse 1? The people. In fact, the Hebrew construction here implies that the, that the Israelites gathered around Aaron in a threatening way, demanding Aaron to make a god or else. Now, there's two things that didn't happen here in this passage. First, Israel didn't follow. They led. They didn't, didn't submit to Aaron's authority. That's the first thing that happened. But second, and this is more important, Aaron didn't lead. 
Just like Adam in the garden, Aaron failed to protect and lead the people. In the garden, as soon as the snake spoke, as soon as the snake spoke, Adam should have protected Eve, attacking the snake and reminding Eve of the goodness of God. Reminding Eve of the words of God. In a similar way as the leader of Israel, as the high priest, right, Aaron? Aaron should have reminded the people of the goodness of God. He should have told them to listen to God's word, to wait for him, to not make a carved image, to obey the first and second commandment. But instead, like Adam, he followed. He followed, and because of this, he will become the focus of the sin. Just like Adam did. In fact, just like Adam, God came to him, not Eve, came to him first and asked, what happened, right? We know the story. Then he goes to Eve. Moses is going to do the same thing. He's going to come down from the mountain, and he's going to go straight to Aaron and ask Aaron, what happened? Aaron failed to lead. Israel failed to submit, and this led to sin. Again, this is an example to us. God has established authority structures within the family, and within the church. Authority structures, by by the way, that our culture hates, absolutely hates in both the family and the church. But God has established these authority structures for our good. And when we fail to follow God's created order, sin is bound to follow. Which brings us to a third way Israel fell into sin. Third, Israel suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Listen, sin makes you stupid. Now, stupid is a word that we're not allowed to say in our household unless it's appropriate. (laughs) And it's appropriate here. Sin makes you stupid. Look, at verse 1. The people gathered themselves, gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Did you hear that? Did you, did you hear the stupidity in that, that line? First of all, they know where, where Moses is. He went up the mountain. He said, wait here until I come back. So they know that, but, but that's not the, the heart of the stupidity. Listen, listen to what they say. They, they say this, as, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Listen, Moses was not the one who brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt. God has made this very clear. In fact, in Exodus 20, verse 1, God speaks to Israel from his own voice. And the very first thing he says is this, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel is refusing to recognize Yahweh as Savior. They're refusing to recognize Yahweh as the one who saved them. Clearly, 
It was Yahweh who raised up Moses. Clearly, it was Yahweh who sent ten plagues to, to Pharaoh and Egypt. It was Yahweh who had the firstborn of, of the Egyptians put to death. It was Yahweh who caused the Red Sea to part and, and come down and crush on the, on the largest army in the world at that time and destroy them. So why would they say Moses delivered us? Why completely ignore the divine dimension of their salvation? Here's why. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is just Romans 1. That's where that comes from. In fact, Romans 1, 18 through 23 at least, but beyond that, I really believe... Paul, who's the author of Romans, has the Exodus in his mind, has our passage, Exodus 32, and and the golden calf in his mind, and and I can prove that through Scripture. I don't want to take time to do that this morning, but, but this is what Paul is thinking about when he writes this. Just listen to Exodus 1, verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Just think of the Exodus. God has plainly showed himself to the Israelites. In miraculous ways, in ten plagues, in parting the Red Sea, in, in fire descending down on the top of the mountain. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Just think how stupid this is. They exchanged Yahweh this, this awesome God of the Exodus, they exchanged Yahweh for a golden cap that they made. A metal object. That's foolish, right? Claiming to be wise, I get, you just know man's nature. As they go to Aaron, they think, hey, this is a wise course of action. Let's make a golden calf. <laughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sin makes you stupid. You know, it's interesting when you just think about it. In fact, when you study it, when you read through this, it's almost like the story couldn't be true. How could they do this? How could could they be so dumb? How could you see the glory of God in such such an awesome way as Israel did and and then make a golden calf and worship it? It's hard to believe until you look at your own life, right? (laughs) Or better yet, you look at someone else's life that's just so stuck in sin and making such dumb decisions, right? Because it's so much easier to see the the stupidity in someone else's life than our own, right? We do the same thing. Every time we sin, we are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Again, 
Bible makes it clear. God makes it clear. This is why this is an example to us. And this leads me to a fourth way Israel fell into sin. They fell into sin because they were enticed by a sinful culture. Look at verse 2 again. It says this. So Aaron said to them, Take off the, the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their, their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now let me ask a question. Why would they build a golden calf? Let me ask another little more pointed question. Where, where did they learn how to worship this way? Egypt. They just got done spending 400 years in the land of Egypt. In other words, Israel was still being influenced by the Egyptian culture. They weren't in Israel, Egypt anymore. They're out in the wilderness, right? They left Egypt, but Egypt had not left them yet. In fact, they were so entangled with the Egyptian culture that Egypt was, was in their hearts. Listen to what Stephen writes in Acts 7 about this, this time. He says this in Acts 7, verse 39. He says, Our, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. You hear what Stephen says, inspired by God? He said, he said, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Listen, culture has a powerful influence over man's heart. It has a powerful influence over man's heart. For the Israelites, their hearts were so entangled with the pagan culture of Egypt when they were not satisfied with, with Yahweh's timetable, they did what they knew. They did what was familiar to them. They did what they have seen. They made a, a carved image and worshipped it. And again, this is an example to us. Culture has a powerful influence over man's heart. And before we point our fingers as conservative Christians to Hatchapians at the culture around us, we, we need to realize that culture has a powerful influence over our hearts. And it takes humility to, to ask the question, where? It takes diligent studying in God's word. And culture has a, a powerful influence over man's heart. This brings us to a fifth way Israel fell into sin. They relied too heavily on their sight and not the word of God. Look at verse 4 again. It says this, And he received the gold 
from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. The golden calf was an idol, but very importantly, it was an idol that you could see. It's one you could see. They completely ignored what God had said in making this idol. God spoke again from the mountain, from the fire, to the Israelites. They all heard his voice, and he said this, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. That's the second commandment. The Israelites heard this from God's own voice, yet they still built a golden calf. Why? Well, look at verse 1. Verse 1 again, it says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now, I've already pointed this out, but the word saw does not have to be used here. The author could have just said when Moses delayed to come down the mountain, but instead, the author adds an an important detail. He says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. That's, That's not by accident. It does two things. It points us back to Genesis 3, but it also sets the tone for the entire passage. The Israelites were relying on their sight. Turn back to to Genesis 3 again. I told you to put a bookmarker there. Genesis 3 again, verse 1. Again, there's so many different aspects to this passage. I'm going to read through this again, 1 through 6, and I want you to pay attention to two things. One, the word of God, and two, Eve's sight. Start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? What's he doing? He's attacking God's word. Did God actually say? He's bringing a question into what God said, what he spoke, what Eve heard. God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Again, verse 3 says, But God said. That's, That's God's word. Adam and Eve heard God's word. Eve through Adam, but she heard God's word. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, what? Your eyes. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw, same word, same word using Exodus 32, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In other words, she ignored God's word and went after something she could see. Satan often, often gets us to sin by enticing our eyes. And think of David. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 says this, David saw, same word, David saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
It was lust of David's eyes that led him to sin. In fact, turn to Matthew 14, verse 25, because I think this is extremely important, this, this concept. Let me just ask this question as you're turning there. Why do most non-believers, what would, what would most non-believers say why they don't believe in God? Can't see him, right? I, I can't see, I've never seen him. Look at Matthew 14, verse 25. It says this, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Walking on the sea. This is a very familiar passage, right? Jesus walking on water. Well, let's just walk through it. Verse 26 says, But when the disciples, what? Saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. In other words, their eyes deceived them. It was Jesus on the water, and they were terrified. And they saw it. Verse 27, but immediately what? Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What is that? It's God's word. Jesus spoke. In fact, the the correct translation should be, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. All of a sudden, he's not scared. He heard God's word. He's not fearful anymore. Jesus said, right, verse 29, he said, come. Again, that's God's word, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. It's amazing faith, and, 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 and there's no fear anymore. But look at verse 30. But when he, what? Saw. When he saw the wind. First of all, how do you see wind? But more importantly, his sight. He was relying on his sight. And what happened when he relied on his sight? When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did he doubt? Because he was relying on his sight, not the word of God. That's what led to doubt. Here's the lesson. Faith comes from hearing, not seeing. Faith comes from hearing, not seeing. Listen, God often reveals himself through visible things. I'm not denying that. Just think of creation. It reveals the glory of God. Think of the heavens and the stars Think of the tabernacle. We spent so much time in there. All the symbolism that you could see with your eyes. Think of the the ordinances that we we obey today in the new covenant. Baptism is visual. The, The Lord's Supper engages the eyes. Again, God often reveals himself through visible things, but he most clearly reveals himself through his word. Romans 10, 17 says this, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is why we set up our our worship services here at Country Oaks the way that we do. The focus of Sunday morning is the proclamation of God's word. 
hearing God's word. In fact, we open with God's word. And we go to seeing God's word. We pray God's word. We read God's word. We preach God's word. And then to close, we, we read it again. <laughs> because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We need to be careful because we're a visual culture. I'm not trying to be legalistic here or, or, or say you shouldn't do something, but we need to be careful how much value we put on shows or movies, especially if they are biblical. Because faith comes from hearing, not seeing. God is a God who has heard, not seen. Just think of the tabernacle for a second, right? Detailed description of almost everything. But I hope you notice there's absolutely no description of God. The presence of God was just above the ark, above the mercy seat, without any description. In fact, as I picture the tabernacle, I get to that point, I just don't know what to picture there. <laughs> That's on purpose. God is a God who is heard, not seen. The golden calf, on the other hand, is a God who is seen and not heard. This is exactly what the Israelites wanted, and just think about it. They wanted a God who they could see, yet demanded nothing of them. A God who didn't speak. A God who didn't talk, that they couldn't hear, that only listened to them. It's exactly the heart of man. So revealed in this passage. This leads to a sixth way. Israel fell into sin. They mixed true worship of Yahweh with pagan practices and false beliefs. They mixed true worship of Yahweh with pagan practices and false beliefs. Now, there's a debate, and I've read all about this debate, whether Israel was worshiping a false god in Exodus 32, or worshiping Yahweh, the true God, by false means, by making a carved image, a, a, a calf, and saying, hey, we're just worshiping through this to you, God. There's a debate about this, and, and I'm not going to get into all the details, because a lot of it has to do with the, the language, the Hebrew language, and how it's worded. Uh, but from what we know for sure, and I think it's meant to be ambiguous at some level, what we know for sure is this. Israel was mixing true worship of Yahweh with idolatry. And that's what's important. Right, look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, right, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, the, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Did you hear that? <laughs> I mean, when you read this, this story out of context, it's one thing, but when you put it in the context of the book of Exodus, Aaron called this golden calf Yahweh? God's name he graciously revealed to the Israelites at the burning bush, to Moses? 
that's connected to his character. The whole purpose of, of the book of Exodus is that he's revealing what it means that his name is Yahweh, and, and Aaron takes it and puts it on this metal object they made. You know, this means Aaron didn't just break the first and second commandment, he also broke the third. Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. I think as you follow this story, he took the name of Yahweh and threw it on this golden calf to save his own skin, but we'll get into that. Because it gets worse than that even. Look at verse 6. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. Listen, they didn't learn that from Egypt. They learned that from Yahweh himself. This is how they were to worship Yahweh through burnt offerings and peace offerings. This means Israel took elements of true worship and perverted it with idolatry, with false worship. Meaning, the worship of the golden calf, they worshiped the golden calf in a way they were to worship God. And they even called the golden calf Yahweh. I mean, it's just incredible. <laughs> After all they, they've seen, right? It's incredible. The sinfulness of man heart, wanting to justify himself, what he will do. And you know what? This is an example to us. That's what Paul says. There's no sin that's not common to man. In other words, just because a person claims to be a worshiper of God, I want you to hear this, just because a person claims to be a Christian and a worshiper of God doesn't mean he's actually worshiping the God of Scripture. There are all types of cults that use biblical language and practices, but in reality, worship a false God. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, you talk to any one of them, you try to witness to a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, and they'll use all types of biblical language. And it might even confuse you going, I think they believe what we believe, but then you examine it a little bit further and you realize they don't, they don't mean anything we believe. <laughs> it's not the, the God of the Bible they're worshiping. Liberal theologians and liberal churches who deny God's wrath and justice— just ignore those portions of Scripture. We don't really like those portions of Scripture. Right? God's a God of love, and by love they mean something totally different than what love means in Scripture. They use that, that term, God is love, to, to encourage sinful behavior. They're not worshiping the God of Scripture. Even Catholics. This will get me in trouble who elevate Mary and pray to her, who add works to grace, who equate the church, church tradition and, and man's words to the authority of, of God's words. Listen, we are to worship God as revealed in the word of God. We add anything to it or take anything away from it, then we are worshiping something other than God of the Bible. 
And just because Israel called the golden calf Yahweh and worshiped the golden calf like Yahweh did not actually make the golden calf Yahweh. So I think no matter how you end up in this debate, you're still worshiping a false god. Brings the seventh way Israel fell into sin. Israel let the lust of their hearts guide them instead of the truth. Israel let the lust of their hearts guide them instead of the truth. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now the root word behind play, the Hebrew... uh, can just mean innocent play or laughter, but it often has sexual overtones to it, and that's definitely the case here. In other words, after offering sacrifices to this false god, the people sat down to eat, to drink, probably to get drunk, and rose up to play, to engage in sexual perversion. You know, I believe this is why the Israelites built a golden calf in the first place. For how stupid it is, or was, to worship a a, a golden calf that they made themselves, the golden calf demanded absolutely nothing of them. There was no sixth, seventh commandment. It just served as a means to justify their fleshly desires simply to get drunk and fornicate. R.C. Sproul writes this, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience and no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was death, dumb, impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. The golden calf was a way for Israel to justify a hedonistic lifestyle, or at least a hedonistic way of worshiping. And once again, this is an example for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 says this again, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let me just ask a question. What are some ways modern men justify their hedonistic lifestyles? How about this? Belief in evolution. If we're just involved animals meaning there's no God who created us, then there's no moral demands on our lives. It's just like the golden calf, right? There's no one speaking, demanding. If evolution is true, then there's no moral standard, there's no authority over us, no authoritative voice. Just a lifeless universe. Therefore, do what you want. How about this one? Postmodernism, which teaches there is no truth. If there is no truth, 
absolute truth, and there is no moral standard that is true. There is no truth, and there are no moral demands on us. But just talk about how stupid that is. How dumb this statement is. There, there, there are no absolute truth. There are no absolute truths. Let me disprove that with one question. Is that true? Modern man is no different than Israel, right? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Our golden calves are just more sophisticated. They're really not, but to us they are. They're ideologies that are used to suppress the truth and unrighteousness so we can live whatever way we want to and feel justified in it. Evolution and postmodernisms aren't belief systems that we got to with, with careful reasoning and studying. They are both just ideologies that, that man uses to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let me, let me prove it to you. Let me, let me ask a question. Where is, where is one of the most hedonistic places in our culture? Or throughout our nation? How about the dorm room? The university? The place where these ideologies are widely accepted and taught? Take an 18-year-old that has gone through church his whole entire life, send him to to college, and have them say there is no absolute truth, and he's going to go, okay, that means I can do what I want. And guess what? It's a recipe for a hedonistic lifestyle. You want to talk about people sitting up to eat and drink and rising up to play? Go to the dorm. Israel let the lust of their hearts guide them instead of the truth. And the lust of their hearts led them to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness that it was plain to them. It's what the university has become. Which leads me to the eighth and final way Israel fell into sin. And this may be the most applicable. They forgot about the God who saved them. They forgot about the God who saved them. Turn with me to one last place, Psalm 106, verse 19. By the way, any pastor that says that the Old Testament isn't relevant to us needs to take it up with Paul. Verse 19 says this, They made a calf in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, a passage, they, and worship a metal image. They exchange the glory of God. This is where Paul gets that language in Romans 1. He's thinking about Exodus. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. It's not even an ox that eats grass. It's the image of the ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonderful works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Simply, they forgot God. 
They were so blinded by their lustful desires that they forgot the God who saved them. You know, this is really an appropriate place to, to end today. Because man has such a tendency to forget. To forget. Think about it. Right? Just think of Israel. Again, it's so hard to believe. They are at the foot of Mount Sinai. All they have to do is look up. A mountain that just weeks earlier exploded with the glory of God. Yet within a short period of time, they forgot. Man has a tendency to forget. And when we forget God, we fall into sin. And this is a lesson for us. Because just like Israel, we have a tendency to forget. This is why our weekly meetings is, is so necessary. This is why God said don't neglect meeting together. In fact, I, I don't think once a week's enough. That's why, that's why, as Daniel spoke earlier, small groups and accountability groups are so necessary. I know I, I'm such a sinner. I need to meet more than once. <laughs> this is why daily devotions and, and prayer and reading God's word is so necessary every day. This is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again so we, so we don't forget the God who saved us. Because we have a tendency to forget. You know, the last few months as we've been walking through the tabernacle, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it got repetitive. Just over and over and over and over again, we saw how the tabernacle pointed Israel forward to Jesus and the gospel just every week. It was the gospel over and over and over again. You know, that's not an accident. It wasn't an accident. God designed it that way because, because he knew and he knows that his people needed to be reminded over and over and over again. He built the tabernacle so the Israelites would see it over and over and over again. And, and he knew that the church one day would be preaching through the book of Exodus and they would be in this portion of the tabernacle and just be preaching the gospel over and over and over again to his people. God knows we need to hear about God's justice and grace and how they met at the cross. That God's perfect justice was poured out on Christ so that his goodness and grace and love could be poured out on us. Mercy and grace. We need to hear that so we don't forget. Listen, let me close with this. The gospel ever stops being preached from this pulpit or the pulpit we're getting back soon here. You need to leave this church. Because it's what you need to hear over and over and over again. Let's pray. Dear God, it's so humbling to, to read this passage and just see how sinful Israel was and how badly they felt. 
keep your covenant, to, to keep the law. And before Moses even come down with the instructions for the tabernacle, Lord, they're, they're already worshiping a false god, Lord. It, it's so humbling because, because Paul tells us is this is an example to us that we have the same tendency. I thank you for your spirit, Lord, that pulls on our heart when we start heading the wrong direction. I thank you for your word, Lord, that sanctifies us, Lord. I thank you for your grace, Lord, that, that is reminder, a reminder of your goodness, Lord, that we can trust you, that we, we can turn away from sin and do what you have commanded us to do because you are Lord of our life, and that's a good thing. That even when circumstances and the timetable and things are happening that, that just seem out of our control, Lord, we know that they're out of our control, but they're not out of your control, and we can trust you obey you and be faithful through that. God, I thank you that you wrote this down as an example to us, Lord, that we can examine our hearts and see where we are tempted to sin like Israel did. In your son's name, amen.